everyone. Welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a graduate student in education. And with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. One of my favorite books and movies is 2001, A Space Odyssey. While Hail 9000 is portrayed as the antagonist, for me, his disconnection always seems very sad. No doubt this has much to do with the storytelling, but whether intentional or not, it seems as if things get much bleaker for David Bowman after the killer artificial intelligence trying to destroy him is gone. This isn't the only moment in the story where isolation seems to loom large, with the mind-bending final scene being a harrowing experience, maybe even more so in print. So what do these feelings say about isolation, and how can we make sense of them? So, yeah, 2001, you know, a lot of it, I, I love the book. Um, I love all of Arthur C. Clarke is an excellent author, and none of his books are really that long. So, you know, anybody who isn't reading them because they don't want to put in a time commitment, that shouldn't be an obstacle. They're not very long books, Agreed. Um, but they're just so well written. And um, he does a good job of portraying this. And it, probably my favorite book of his is uh, Rendezvous with Rama. Oh, yes. yeah. That's almost like, a, you know, I feel like if, that was, if they're going to make a movie of that, M. Night Shyamalan should direct it. Right, because it's just this long, slow build-up, you know, it's almost like a, you know, like a Lovecraft horror where it's like, yeah. they constantly hint at something and it never comes around. Then at the end it does, but it's not really what it seems. What you and, thought it was going to be, you don't see it really. And yeah, yeah, it's right. That's good. That's a good connection, really. But, um, but 2001, uh, you know, the, the whole plot kind of revolves around um, isolation. And, uh, you know, it's and Stanley Kubrick's, you know, the, the score that goes with it, everything that goes with it really builds this tension and, um, it has this very bleak feel to it. Yes, um, it does. So is that, what I'm going to ask you, is that just me or do you feel the same way when, when he disconnects Hail 9000, right? Oh, do you, do you no. feel relieved or do you feel like, oh shoot, what's, what's happening now? You know? Well, both. I mean, there's a momentary relief that <clears throat> he's not going to be uh, the prey of an artificial intelligence gone awry. I mean, there's there's that that relief, but it's but that is swiftly. You're right. It's over overwhelming the realization that he is now totally alone. Everyone else is dead. He's by himself. There's no way he's going to go back, as far as he can tell. And and then eventually goes through this transformation that uh, isolates him in a different way. So, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I think any of these uh, uh, marvelous science fiction uh, tales, which, as you know, I've been immersed in my entire life. Uh, and, I, and, and Clark, I'm glad you enjoy Clark because you know he's considered one of the old guys, you know, the old guard, the golden age science fiction. But he was uh, intensively uh, interested in. And, and trained to uh, be very um, realistic in his portrayals of, of science-oriented material. He was exploring the science of it. But if you fast forward to something like Blade Runner, what was the, the Blade Runner a couple of years ago? It was a, I loved this movie. Uh, we, many people didn't think it moved the way it should, but it was really incredibly well done. Again, the slow pace building up, the uh, notion that people are very 
everyone's to himself. You have this bleakness, and the character, the lead character, not the Harrison Ford character, finds a relationship with an artificial intelligence, essentially a projection of, of a female with a personality, and then losing her is an incredibly devastating thing to the character. So it, I guess what we're getting at here is that isolation can be generated in a variety of ways, and that suggests that we can also be attached to things that aren't explicitly human. Yeah. And that's a really good teaser for the whole episode coming up, because this is all the stuff we're going to talk about um, <laughs> getting into. And we should do a whole episode on 2001 sometime. And yeah, you know, oh, we could do it that. on any any type of movie or book or anything. And I, you know, maybe that's something we'll do later, later yeah. on in different episodes mm-hmm. is look at the philosophy of some of these um these kind of masterpieces in different mediums. But for now, we're talking about isolation. So what is isolation? To be, it's a condition of being removed from others, to be apart from others, to be separate from direct interaction. Now, okay. the, pro- the word direct is going to give us problems, but there, yeah, there's a start. Yeah. yeah, I think that I know what you're trying to do, and you're trying to be careful about describing it, and I think that that's <laughs> smart. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow up with some questions that will uh, make us think about it a little bit deeper. So what separates isolation from solitude? Ooh, the, con- the contextual... the contextual situation itself. Solitude is an emotional condition as much as a physical one, or can be. Solitude is, I think, generally has a positive connotation of a chosen placement of oneself away from others in some way in order to meditate, in order to uh, contemplate. And so it has a, a sense of a healthiness, a spiritual choice, perhaps. You, you think that makes sense? Yeah. Um, how, about, how about like reclusion? Do you think that's something similar, but with a negative connotation, or is it a different... Well, it can have a negative connotation. I, I remember growing up, there was... I think everyone has this. Every every town has people. Village has uh, people who are on the on the fringes, who people make up stories about because they don't bother to try to understand who they are and what what they do. And so we, there was a person lived in a place uh, nearby when, where I grew up. Everyone referred to this person as the hermit, well, because he dressed uh, pretty much in the same clothes all the time. He only came to town once a month, kind of. It's like living in the old West, for God's sake. But, but, but a recluse is someone who removes themselves from uh, conditions, usually as a social statement, as a political statement, uh, as a not wanting to participate in the social 
conditions as they are. Okay. So reclusion tends to focus on physical isolation almost as a protest or um, as a statement of personal values. I I would assert that right now just for the conversation, yes. Okay. Whereas solitude um, could be a more temporary situation that somebody is taking up for um, their own um, their own personal purposes as opposed to um, anything that has to do with the outside world or society, you think? Yes. I, and, and I think there's a bleed over into these things, but yes, I, yeah. Okay. So now, do you think that solitude and reclusion are both types of isolation? Yes. I do. So I, because, yeah, go ahead. So isolation is kind of an overarching um, thing that that these things fall into. Yes, I I, I do. I, I think uh, that's why I think the the topic that you chose for us for today is is a good catch all for it uh, because if we think about our and we'll get to this, but quarantining and I'm sure we're going to talk about this. Uh, that's an isolation of a kind. Um, but right, yeah. But but isolation can kind of refer to anything from uh, prisoners being put in solitary confinement. Solitary confinement. The word solitary and solitude seem seem to cohere. But but there's an there's of course the ele- element of either protecting or punishing. And solitude right. itself doesn't have that. Um, there, in hospital wards, you you have isolation units in order to keep people safe from others or keep one safe from all the other germs that somebody else might have. And so, yeah. 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 So we're, we're already seeing that isolation is, is a pretty complex topic because now if we're looking at it, right, you mentioned up, you, you mentioned quarantining. Um, yeah. If you and I are both in isolation now, and people have, who have listened to the the podcast for a long time know this. You know, at one point we had our our nice studio recordings, and and we were obviously in the same room together. Yeah. Now we're obviously um, at a distance, so yeah. we're considered in isolation because we are physically separate. But here we are talking to one another the same way we were when we were together in a room. Yes. So. Isolation, in that sense, means we're physically separate, but we have a relationship. Now, can yes. isolation also have um, the inverse meaning that you could be with somebody but not have a relationship with them? Or is there a different term or word that we would use to conceptualize that? Well, I think isolation is would psychologically be one of the terms. I'm sure there's a, a more accurate psychological term that I that's uh, the APA has in its grand book of terminologies that I'm not immediately aware of might come to me. But but yes, you can certainly be isolated from someone who's standing right next to you if you have the mindset, the psychological condition, whatever cluster of characteristics that makes you feel uh, 
what is it, a million miles away from that person, and they're half a foot away from you. Right. Okay, so um, I I did know the answer to that one already. I, if there is another term, I don't know it, but when I was looking it up, the Psychological Association does recognize emotional isolation, which is um, being in the physical presence of others without while being separate. So that creates kind of a philosophical conundrum for us, doesn't it? Because now we have one term that encapsulates um, diametrically opposed positions, where in one instance you're physically separated but emotionally connected, and in the other one you're emotionally connected but physically separated. Do you, do you, so what does that mean for a definition of isolation? How can one word encapsulate two of opposite ideas? <laughs> it's it's a tesseract of a word, which is what I uh, love about it. The the, the mathematic. If you ever go to the mathematical, they're animated versions of a tesseract. We're not talking about the tesseract from the Avengers. We're talking about this uh, fifth representing the fourth dimension, which means a constant ex ex extrusion or intrusion into spaces that we can't quite imagine. And I think that's fitting because the word, the, the linchpin is separation. And separation, like so many marvelously rich words, can have all kinds of connotations. So yes, it's, a, it's seemingly a conundrum, but really what it means is the word is, a, is an incredible toolbox allowing for a description of many circumstances. But all of them hinge on separation of one kind or another. And all of them, therefore, kids at or require at least one other individual or an entire society. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we can, it's funny because we can draw metaphysical parallels to this linguistic term. Like you're saying, um, you know, like the shape of the universe, you know, we talk about, we've talked about in the past, the, the shape of the universe is most likely a four dimensional hypertoroid, which is, you know, kind of a donut shape, but that doesn't really explain it because a donut is in three dimensions and space time <laughs> is in four dimensions. Yes. And so our tiny brains can't wrap our understanding around that. And um, yeah, isolation, the word isolation is kind of a similar way, right? If we look at it in the dimensions that we normally think of, it doesn't seem like one term should be able to encapsulate two opposite ideas. But you're right, separation is kind of the singularity or the black hole of this idea where all of yep. a sudden everything that has meaning bends back around and, and touches itself again. And you can never see actually what's down in there, but we know that <laughs> separation and, and con, you know, contact is, is, is that, is that singularity. So we'll, we'll try well to peer deeper in and, and see if we can figure <laughs> out what it is without getting trapped. So, yeah. So, and I think we've, we've hinted at this a little bit with our, our talks at the beginning, but does isolation have to occur in the presence of people? Do you have to have another person for there to be isolation? I think that it's implied because even if we talk about geographic isolation, it wouldn't be isolation. I mean, you can be you can be 
let's use common things. You can be parachuted into the middle of nowhere, so to speak, and therefore isolated. But what are you isolated from? Other people. I mean, <laughs> if if you're if you are exiled and banished, these are other words that that are in the the cluster of this black hole at the fringe at the <laughs> at that that zone uh, you you are banished from a group of people there's there's always the people involved in it if you are science fictionally on a on a ship like we just talked about with 2001 or let's say you you're volunteered to fly a vessel and you know you're not going to come back and you're going to a place that might explore a new planet, and you have no idea whether it even is going to be able to support life, and you have left the Earth on that ship, you have isolated from, voluntarily, for all kinds of good reasons, you're isolated from the rest of your culture. So yeah, I don't think there's any way around that. See, okay, so now I'm going to ask you a question. Um... <laughs> And I've got I've got two of them, so I'm going to start out with um, the easier of the two, and then if you manage to wiggle your way out of that, <laughs> then you're going to so, get me anyway. <laughs> so we'll use our 2001 example, all right? So I'll ask you: At what point was David Bowman isolated? When his last remaining companion died, or when he disconnected Hail 9000? Oh, well, that's a brilliant question, and it implies this this. Russian doll metaphor. He and his crew were isolated the moment they sealed up into their spaceship and left. There's a degree of isolation there. He is further isolated when his crewmates die. He is com I I don't I was about to say completely. I don't know that I will do that. He is seemingly completely isolated when he dis disconnects hell. Right. But we okay. know that that's not the case because he eventually evolves through contact with the universe into a melding with the universe itself. And you've done well. So here comes the follow-up. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, Master Jedi. <laughs> you've done well. All right, so here's the follow-up. Was Tom Hanks isolated in Castaway when he lost Wilson? Well, yes. Now, you have to understand, I haven't watched the film, but I have read enough about it and people tell me about oh, it. So okay. I'm, talking, I'm talking, my daughter-in-law, I know, it, would be disappointed it, to hear it's this. Been long, it's been long <laughs> enough, I should probably offer a quick synopsis. So, yeah. Tom Hanks, there's a helicopter or an airplane crash. He ends up marooned on an island. Um, off of the plane's cargo, he finds a volleyball. Um and through course, he gets frustrated, he injures his hand, he picks up the volleyball and throws it. Um, when he picks up the volleyball and sees his bloody handprint, he puts two eyes and a mouth, he draws in his own blood on it. <laughs> and then throughout the rest of the movie, he forms uh, an emotional attachment to this volleyball, Wilson, which is the brand of the volleyball. Um, and... You know, he talks to it. He does all of these things, right? And Wilson is his companion on this desert island. Um, and then when he goes to escape, during the course of his escape, he loses Wilson. And there's this very 
um, emotional scene where he, you know, breaks down. He's very upset as Wilson bobs away into the ocean, right? <laughs> so we talked about, you know, I asked you the original question, which was, do you have to have other people for there to be isolation? Um, and we said, yes. And then we, we started to parse it apart a little bit with 2001, right? And I think yeah. that you're right. I think that they were isolated when they left humanity, and then they were further isolated when the rest of the crew died, and then he was... But here's where it gets tricky, is, you know, did a further um, level of isolation occur when Hal 9000 ceased to exist, even though he wasn't a person, or was he as an AI? And is Wilson, which is not an AI, he's an inanimate object. When mm -hmm. Wilson bobs off into the ocean, is there even a further level of isolation there? Or was the isolation already complete when Tom Hanks was alone on the island? No, I, that's, that's a marvelous question. And you are, you are using laser slice and dice here, which <laughs> the surgery is, is precise. Yes, he's isolated first by going to the island, just as Robinson Crusoe. I mean, that's what they're riffing off it. But, but we are capable of casting, as we well know, of of making something out of nothing, so to speak. Batman doesn't exist, but he does. Odysseus may have existed, but we don't know. But he does because of the stories. When we're kids. Some people have invisible friends. Some people, my, my granddaughter has some stuffed animals that she calls friends. Some have names, some don't, but they have momentary personalities. I don't know that they are consistent and that when they put down whether they exist still or not, it's, I don't know if it's a Toy Story thing in her head or not, but, I, but, but, but clearly these things are important. If a child loses a stuffed animal friend, it can be a very difficult circumstance because something has gone away. All right, so now we're going to the Tom Hanks character, the character that Tom Hanks portrays. And to lose Wilson is just, I would argue, just as viable in those psychological circumstances if if his character realizes Wilson's just a ball, but he's still totally invested in Wilson psychologically, then Wilson exists. And so when Wilson goes bobbing away, that's a death and more of an isolation. So it's an isolation within an isolation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that that's perfect. And it's a good segue into some of the formative discussion about this. Okay. So why why do you think our sensory system is wired? around human contact in that way. And so, you know, I mean, the face value answer is pretty obvious. You know, we, humans most likely um, evolved at a very early stage to be a communal um, species. Hmm. But why do you think that that causes some of these weird effects, right? So, you know, uh, you'll see hallucinations or um, time dilation, if somebody's thrown in solitary confinement, right? Let's mm -hmm. say they might start hallucinating things that aren't there, or they might start thinking that a, a vast amount of time has gone by and, and nothing has, or they'll develop <laughs> these, these severe mental illnesses. Why do you think that, why do you think that that happens? Well, well, first I know that the, the larger arguments 
well-supported or made that we are a communal species. But, but we've also, I believe, sociologically and perhaps anthropologically come to find out that uh, we are not large communal species. In a circle of maybe, what was it I've read recently, up to maybe a hundred individuals, we can be civil and have relationships and so on. When we get beyond that, we just get all messy and fall apart. <laughs> and and so, so large structure societies are not natural in in the sense of being built into us. We have are artificially generated these. Now I've gotten off track. So the question, Joel, is <laughs> Well I think that <laughs> I'm that's sorry. A, no, that's a good that's a good point to to sort of focus on because I don't think that's something that occurs to people a lot, right? But if you look at other animals, you have some animals that are, for all intents and purposes, solitary. Now, animals get together for, you know, reproduction or these different types of things. But like if you had a, you know, a tiger, for instance, one tiger will have, you know, 40 square miles of land that's, you know, belongs to it. And it's not going to interact with any other tigers unless it's time to, to reproduce or to fight to protect the territory. On the other end of the spectrum, you have like ants, right? Where with ants... The entire concept of privacy, um, even if they were able to conceive of it, would be um, a mute point, right? They're constantly crawling over each other and doing things. And, and it's really interesting. If you ever find this, I always, I've spent five or 10 minutes at a time just watching a single ant, right? Because sometimes, and you can tell an ant that still has a scent trail back to where it belongs and where it's going and an ant that has lost that. And if you see an ant by itself that has lost its way back to its colony and how it acts, you realize that this thing was never meant to be by itself. Mm -hmm. You know, So where humans fit into that, um, I think that's a point worth bringing up because I think that you're absolutely right. Humans aren't um, solitary or communal so much as tribal, right? I think yeah. that they've always existed in a state of their being others their group and then others and i you know and i think that's something that will become uh, obvious to people who are from rural areas like us when they go to a city right so you and i think of new york city as one thing but you go down there and you have queens and the bronx and you have all of these different sections mm -hmm. and all those different sections consider them that's their tribe that's their people and there's Yes, there's New York City, and they consider themselves a piece of that, but they also consider themselves to have their own section. And it, sometimes, in places like Baltimore, it'll come right down to their own block. This block is its own place, and the next yes. block is a different place. Yes, um, but that's true I, here, too. That's right. true here, too. I live in Warsaw. You live in Perry. I know people in Warsaw I talk about Perry as if it's this country on the other side of the bloody ocean. <laughs> and uh, Well, those people in Perry, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And, and, or, or if living in Warsaw, and then people find it strange if one drives to. Not everybody, but if, but I have experienced this with a few people who find it strange that I worked in Batavia. 
that was such a long way away. In fact, it was even questionable to a police officer once. I think I told you about this. And <laughs> yeah. Who, 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 who thought, it, thought it a little questionable when, when, I, when I was pulled over because I had a light out that I would be employed in Genesee County and yet live in Wyoming County. <laughs> wow. So it's not, I, I take your example. Yes, New York City is a cluster of, cl- cluster of clustered societies and cultures and subcultures of all kinds, but so is in microcosm uh, some of the places we live much more closely. Yeah, and I think that that adds on to the, the layers of isolation that we were talking about, right? Because you're absolutely right. Um, people will identify, you know, will find identity in different groups depending on what metrics they're looking at. So, you know, you can look at geographical location, you know, and say, okay, I live in Perry, you know, or you could look at um, and say, okay, well, I am in Perry and, and anything outside of Perry is foreign. But you could also say, if I'm of a, um, a liberal political um, persuasion, right? I can look at that and say, well, I'm isolated because I am surrounded by conservative political people. Or you could look at a religious metric or, um, yeah. you know, whatever metric you wanted, an educational metric, a, anything, you can pick anything that you want and then by that metric determine who your tribe is, who your group is. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't have, to, especially with the with the way technology has progressed, it doesn't have to do with geographical location anymore, right? I can find people all over the world that have yeah. that belong to my tribe. Yeah. Um, so, getting back to the question I f- first asked, why is our sensory system wired around human contact the way it is? So, why if if somebody is separated, um, solitary confinement? Why do they have hallucinations? Why do they have time dilation? Why do they develop mental illness um, from being by themselves? The lack of the context of of social connection, which is, I, I know I'm, making, I'm stating the obvious. We, the, this is, goes back to all of the dualities, all of the dichotomies that one can, can raise. How do we how do we define loneliness by being removed from from contact? So it would suggest that we thrive with at least some interaction with others. It gives us a sense of I mean the sense of time or time dilation. If you read the current physicists. None of us is living in the same time. Right now, we don't. We aren't even in the same moment talking to each other because of the the separation and the delay of the electronics that are causing this communication or enabling this communication. But if I'm in my mind at the same time that I'm talking with you, I have a, a thought about uh, something that has has occurred, and. I can have that dwelling that's sort of like a subroutine <laughs> going on in which I'm in slow motion in that or locked in the amber of that moment while there's still a fluidity of conversation going on. So I think when you're removed from almost any contact, then you do not have the sensory stimulation of 
conversation, if not physical touch or physical proximity and the sensations of someone at least being there. You can look at a picture, but it's not the same thing as talking to someone and have them talking back. Um, so it, it can disrupt, or that's a negative word, or, or create an alternative perception of time moving. How do, we, how do we measure time? If we take away all of our clocks, I dare say that some of us would have a rough guess at what time of the day it was by glancing at the sky. Some of us might not. And, and then we have all those times when we feel, it, how many times this winter have I felt that it must be almost 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock at night and it's like 6.30, but the intense darkness, which I'll, I'll you know, so... That's a long way around going to say we remove context. Okay. Yeah. And I think that you're right. Um, but I guess that we talked about this in another episode, and I can't remember which one it was. But I think we, we were talking about relationships mm-hmm. and um, whether you're, I think whether you needed a person for a relationship. Um, and so the question then becomes, um, if you, this person's in solitary confinement, right, and they have a, a picture or something, right, a picture of another person, what's to stop that person from being Wilson? So, it, why, in some cases, would somebody develop a Wilson, a relationship, essentially with themselves, um, and and a, a context and a way of um, not be feeling isolated? And some people um, would would be driven, you know mad by some of these negative effects and not mm. not use that it's a creation to keep one to keep one's integrity i almost said sanity but i don't want to use the word sanity because i think that implies a judgment that i don't want to go to in, in these extreme circumstances it, it the, the structural integrity of the being might mean that we project Stuff and and you're right. We've talked about this, but we've talked about it in the sense of identity, in the sense of we we the cognitive folks, the scientists, the philosophers, neurocognition has made it quite clear. Although we don't know all the reasons why it happens, that the machinery of the mind it is ex- explicable that the machinery of the mind creates this projection of an I, the, the individual I, when, in order to just keep the machine going, <laughs> as if the body is entertaining itself to keep itself moving. Mm-hmm. So that the I, like I, here I am, that I is extraneous, <laughs> seemingly, but but yet has a, a use to the overall health of the body as machine. Yeah, we went really in-depth into this in another episode. I wish I don't know if it was consciousness or which one it is, but that was that I was, think was really consciousness. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good that'd be a good one to go back so, to. So so but and and so it let's say but let's back away from that, but I just wanted to go there as as an example of as a model. So if we create a Wilson, it's the 
body, the mind, projecting something else to interact with in order to keep the idea of a relationship. Because a relationship can be, it doesn't have to, a relationship doesn't imply just human. Relationship implies uh, an interaction with objects or, or people or, or ideas. It implies connection, but connection doesn't mean connection with somebody who's actually there. Yeah, so even adults can have imaginary friends. Right? <laughs> That's, you know, and, I but have I mean, to say really, this, it's, yeah, it, um, it's not it's not a crazy thing to say because I mean they've they've done studies and have found people who um, who talk to themselves tend to be better problem solvers, right? So if you're a computer screen, particularly, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so if you're sitting by yourself, you got a problem. You're going, oh, geez, I, man, what if I move this over here? Do that, do that thing. An outside yeah. observer would say, this guy's nuts. Look at him. He's sitting there. There's nobody around. Who's he talking to? But you're literally having a conversation with yourself, trying to come up with a solution to a problem. Yeah. And there's been other um, interesting, something that's kind of. Um, uh, popular now is these these isolation tanks, right? Where people um, float in the water <laughs> and it's completely dark, completely quiet. And they found people have two uh, opposite responses to it, right? Some people start freaking out. Um, and other people, they look at their, their brains in the fMRI and they say, wow, these, it's almost as if these people are on psychedelic drugs like all of their brain pathways are opening up and there's all these creative things happening that don't happen under normal circumstances Mm -hmm. so it's triggering different responses in different people um but it's all coming from that lack of context or that it's being left alone with yourself to the highest degree Mm -hmm. but even if you're that isolated are you still isolated well, no, and yes, no, in the sense that the kind of sensory tanks you're talking about, which which go back to philosophical mind exp- games or models, but there's still someone there that you have paid or to give you this experience, and therefore you have some trust that they're going to pull you back out of that experience, just as if you go into a wind tunnel or you go onto a roller coaster or whatever it happens to be. You you can feel like you're in complete danger. Well, you're in some danger. You've chosen that danger, but you also know that there's supposed to be somebody helping you off the, the roller coaster car when you get down it. And somebody's going to lift you from that tank and, and disconnect you from all of the earplugs and those kind of things. So it's it's an illusion of complete isolation. So these having these opposite reactions to isolation. Um, do you think it's a, a nature versus nurture? Right? Do you think some people are inclined to react that way based off of biological um, predispositions, or do you think that there's some natural um, social socialization event that happens over the course of their life that allows them to react positively or negatively to being isolated. 
I, uh, Henry David Thoreau, uh, who wrote Walden. Uh, he cheated, by the way. We know this, but that's okay. But he, but but that's fine. He was he was human, but he did. Uh, he he said something about early on in the experience writing that he never felt loneliness, lonesome, or or oppressed. He didn't feel an oppression in solitude, but when he got into the woods and he could convince himself that there wasn't any neighbor around and it was entirely him, it was unpleasant. And so I think that it's a question of what control we think that we that we might have. And do we have the so-called safety net or, or do we not? Uh, it, you know, TV shows have explored this, novels have explored, lost uh, Gilligan's Island, God help us. Uh, <laughs> uh, I guess there's a new TV show coming out now about a, a group of young women who get uh crash land on an island. Nobody else survives with this group of young women. And so I don't know where that's going to go. I haven't watched it, but I just uh, I read about it recently. And then you have real, so-called reality shows where people are, uh, what, Survivor. I never, ever watched Survivor, but it's a f- cultural phenomenon of, of some kind and, and lasted for a long time. And, and so you're putting people in a situation where we're pretending that terrible things can happen, but yet you've sort of contracted to be removed from that situation at some particular time or other. Right. And I wonder, you know, if, if everybody experiences that the same way, because I think that to me, it seems pretty natural, right? I've, I've been in situations in my life where it's been so dark that I've felt unpleasant where I've been so alone that it's felt unpleasant. Yes. But I almost wonder if, ever, if, if some people don't feel that way and that's why they, they, they don't react the same way other people do. Or do you think that again, nature versus nurture, do you think yeah. some people are wired that way? Or do you think that it has to do with how they have matured or I think it has to do with their own self-awareness with their, the, the confidence they have in themselves in part, but I think at some point everyone reaches I I would suggest that every human being would reach a point at which it was not comfortable, uh, frightening whatever term we we want to use because, you know, I'm thinking about the the grimmest circumstances and and how people are uh, let's go to history and the the expeditions to the North Pole, where ships were frozen in the ice, and and they were dependent on each other, and then people, there were fewer and fewer people. It's the, sort of the 2001 thing again. Mm-hmm. And what do you do to survive? Which gets to be a very difficult question. And then there is, of course, across the planet, political torture in which people are isolated and physically put to absolute horrific duress but sometimes just and I won't say just or put into a condition in which they don't get to have any contact where eventually what little contact they can have is with the people who have put them in that situation in the first place and therefore fundamentally alter 
parts of their thought process. Um, so it's not all what ifing that we're doing. And I know you and I know that, but I, I, but I think it's important to touch base with this. This has very real world circumstances, as does the, the fact that some people have felt a cabin fever <laughs> with the quarantining that we've done with the pandemic. And others have found fresh a freshness or a comfort in some ways of being come, becoming more familiar with their own immediate space and rethinking what their space is. But, but most people who have expressed those positive things generally have some kind of relationship with other people still. Right. Uh, but not everybody has Zoom. Not everybody has computer capabilities and so on and so on. Right. Yeah, and, and you're you're absolutely right. There's there's real world um, implications for this Stockholm syndrome, right? Which is what you kind of what you're referring to. You know, if yeah. somebody is stuck with nobody but their captors long enough, they'll start forming a relationship with their their captors. And I yeah. think that that's the reason 2001 gives you those feelings that it does is because that particular scenario that Arthur C. Clarke wrote is does seem to be the one scenario that would every person on the planet would react to the same way, right? Because I think you could be socialized into not fearing the dark, right? If you had enough um, experience with it or not being afraid of being alone in nature or whatever the circumstances, but being completely separated from any person or other entity in outer space, right? That's mm-hmm. something that nobody could possibly be prepared for or right. habituated to. And so that's why all of a sudden, you know, when he shuts down Hail 9000, it, I think it's very easy for people to actually connect with a feeling that David Bowman, if he was a real person, would be feeling. It's easy to put yourself in his shoes and feel that just yeah. hollow drop in your stomach. Right. It's, it, if Tom Hanks were to have deflated Wilson, <laughs> you know, Wilson was saying terrible things to him and trying to somehow in his mind destroy him, then he would, or he just throws Wilson out into the water. That doesn't make it any less traumatic for him. But if it's, if it's a, then it's a survivor thing again. You can have this relationship with this, this artificial intelligence. But if it's really trying to off you, <laughs> you can have a relationship until you die, or you can throw that relationship away and hope to somehow manage to keep going. Uh, you know, isolation is an extremely potent and powerful circumstance. It's it's not lightly. We we can't. Uh, we're not lightly toying with it. We're having some fun with it. But ultimately, yes. I mean, I. I, I can't. I can imagine. I don't want to imagine it. Somehow, waking up and finding myself in this place that I don't know. I mean, there's so many stories about this kind of thing. But let's say for real, to be lost, to not know where anyone is, to be in a circumstance where you have to fend for yourself. Well, survivalists cultivate this notion of, of being able to do this. I know the military. Does and, and and being self, uh, what's the word I want? Not self-aware. Uh, being able to depend upon oneself—that's important. But 
ultimately there is a sense of loss. And I think that's where, even if we only have 100 or 50 or 10 or whoever people that we're really, really closest to, not to have any of them, that, that's a loss. So in 2001, after he disconnects Hail 9000, we have that ending scene, right? Where he's isolated. And yeah. um, he, he goes into the monolith and inside the monolith. And in the movie, you know, it's hard to portray what's happening. The book does a good job of letting you know that essentially he spends the rest of his life in this room um, developing, you know, growing old and dying and then developing into the star child. Yeah. So, and without even watching the movie and not knowing what's going on, you have this overwhelming um, feeling of meaning, right? Mm-hmm. And so, why does isolation promote a spiritual effect in people? <clears throat> well, one of the things I'm going to say, this is a quotation from Clark himself is is about the feeling of ghosts. In in two thousand one, he he says there's a quotation: "Behind every man now alive stand thirty ghosts, for that is the ratio by which the dead outnumber the living." Since the dawn of time, roughly a hundred billion human beings have walked the planet Earth, and that was back when Clark was was writing. So. I think there's a spiritual sense in being aware of the ancestors, about where you came from, about these these vague <clears throat> images. We may have pictures of our grandfathers or our great-grandfathers or mothers. Uh, we may find family albums or do genealogy and get some kind of image of them back to when images were done, not artistically, but photography, which isn't all that far back. And then beyond that, then it is ghosts. There may be a few words. There may be something somebody said about somebody, but it's just so amorphous. <laughs> so, once again, I'm just straight off. There's so much to talk to about this. So, <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. I mean, it's that kind talking, of Saturday. I'm sorry, Joel. <laughs> yeah, no, no, talking about the the spiritual effects of isolation. Mm-hmm. I do, okay, so yeah. I came across this uh, particular instance that really um, made me made me think. And I'm going to butcher the word, but I'm going to try it. Okay. Sokushin Butsu, um, which is a Buddhist practice between, you know, like 1100 and and 1800 AD, where um, certain Buddhist monks would self-mummify. They mummify themselves alive. And so they go through this, this process of the thousand days of eating you know, nuts and seeds and pine needles and a bunch of other stuff yeah. that would dehydrate the body and, and destroy the, the bacteria in your guts that would cause you to be, to rot. And then they get buried in a, a tiny pine box underground with a breathing tube and they just ring a bell every day, let the other monks know they're alive. And once they stop ringing the bell, the other monks pull the breathing tube up, bury it. Another thousand days go by, they unbury it. And if the monk who had died was left in a preserved state, he was considered to have succeeded in becoming um, a savior for humanity. And I, I'm probably butchering the entire story and the intent behind it. I apologize. <laughs> it's, it's very culturally insensitive. But the, the point behind why I bring it up is that it's, it's this isolation and it's almost this complete commitment to isolation and meditation in a spiritual sense that makes something 
that seems completely incomprehensible or out of reach or contrary to human nature possible, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it, you know, and I'm, I'm much, I, I don't think you're, I, I think it's important to bring these extreme uh, spiritual concepts up because that, because that suggests a, an order of discipline that is out of reach for most of us. Most of us would not attempt or want to attempt such an extreme isolation. But right closer to home, we have a, a you know the Abbey of the Genesee, and 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 this is a, a group of Cistercian monks who who essentially live their life in prayer, making bread, uh, cultivating sunflowers, and and doing uh, lovely work. And and they have you can come in and you can have workshops and and, and those kind of things. But it's essentially a silent discipline. It's not uh, people, there are various degrees of silence, as I understand it, in the practice of their daily relationships and work. And and if you think about it, even putting yourself in a situation where you would not talk ever, or let's just make it, or you would not talk between a certain hour and a certain hour of each day. The, and adhering to that discipline would necessarily change some of the way that you interact with others or with objects. Or you know, if you were truly disciplined and you were working at a computer, you wouldn't be able to talk to yourself while you're working at the computer uh, in some forms of, of this and I say that because I think that that's what isolation we keep coming back to this, it's important isolation does affect how we see things, isolation affects how we interact things it reorders our awareness and therefore changes us right, yeah, no, that's, that's perfect, and you know I think everybody's had sort of this example at some point in their lives, right, where um, I think that modern life has really um, diminished any sort of um, opportunity for isolation or solitude, which isn't to say people can't willingly choose it, but they, we, we don't, usually by default. And I think a good example of it that happens to me every once in a while is if I'm going to somewhere in my car, right? My car automatically hooks up to my Bluetooth, or before Bluetooth, my CD player, or before my CD player, my cassette player, or before that, my radio, <laughs> right? So, you know, so there's some kind of, so you get in your car and music or talking comes on. Mm -hmm. um, but all these systems are able to fail, right? Radio, you might not pick up a signal, a CD player, a tape player might have a mechanical defect. Every once in a while, my Bluetooth in my car. Um, will have some sort of malfunction, just won't hook up, right? <laughs> yeah. And so then I spend my 20-minute or 40-minute drive wherever I'm going in silence. And so then there's, you start, you know, you can't, you don't just drive somewhere with a blank mind, right? You don't, just, <laughs> no, you don't do anything. No. That's, that's, that's the beauty of being a human is you don't do anything with a blank mind. There's always something happening. And so... My last question for the day would be, well, no, it might be my second to last, um, <laughs> is philosophizing a necessary condition of isolation? 
Um, I I want to say it would be inevitable, but that would be too assertive of, of a certain viewpoint. So I can't really say that. I, I say it's a. I would say it's likely. Okay. And my follow up question, which would be my last question, is. So if, if philosophizing is a necessary condition of isolation, and we know that people react in different ways to isolation, positively or negatively, do you think that people who are reacting in those ways, they're reacting to their their philosophies about different aspects of themselves, right? So we know yeah. some people become more creative or they become they have conversations with themselves and some people... Um, you know, have very negative reactions and they, you know, do you think that those are reactions to the answers to the philosophical questions that they start asking when they are truly alone? I do. And I think that's a well-asked question. I think there's another component to that, which is, yes, it's the kind of questions that you ask, but it's also the confrontation with all those things that you hear yourself thinking that are drowned out in daily routine with the CD player or the whatever it happens to be, when you can't escape that inner dialogue anymore or that cacophony, I think it's inevitable that you start thinking about what that means, yes. So there we go. We've validated the purpose for our show. Um, continue, <laughs> continue to develop your philosophical skills so that if you're ever alone, you will not be... <laughs> um, unduly uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, well said, man. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining me, Norm. Um, until next time, keep pondering.